0: does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world listen to madness radio voices and visions from outside mental health sponsored by peer-run support communities freedom center the icarus project and portland hearing voices madness radio can be heard on fm stations on the pacifica radio network and is streaming podcasting and archived at madnessradio.net welcome to our new broadcast station kboo in portland oregon Thanks for joining us on Madness Radio. Today, our show is about autism and the neurodiversity movement. Our guest is Ari Naiman. He's the founding president of the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. He's an adult on the autism spectrum, and he's involved with disability policy nationally. Ari, thank you so much for joining us today on Madness Radio.
1: Well, thank you for having me on the show, Will. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Uh, Yeah, I've really been wanting to do a show about autism and especially the work of the autistic self-advocacy advocacy network, because you're really challenging the idea of normalcy and whether people should be treated to become more normal, which is very uh, parallel with some of the work that the Mad movement is looking at. We're going to be discussing some of the ways in which mental health and autism are related and are different. So Ari, maybe we should just get started with you telling us about your experiences. Now, you're someone who's diagnosed as an adult on the autism spectrum. Is that right?
1: Yes. When I was 12 years old, I was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, which is one of several autism spectrum diagnoses. And basically, what the autism spectrum is, is it's a developmental disability with a wide array of different manifestations. But the commonality is difficulties with social communication and perception and fixated or focused interests, as well as repetitive behaviors. Um, now, there's a wide array of uh, diversity on the autism spectrum, wide array of different kinds of abilities and traits, as well as support needs. Uh, my particular diagnosis, my difficulties were more on the ways in which I perceived the world and the ways in which I still perceived the world socially um, often didn't match with uh, the uh, experiences and social characteristics of my neurotypical peers. So things like... Metaphors um, and uh, social niceties and nonverbal behaviors were a uh, second language to me. It's something that I could, and in due time, did pick up after a significant effort, to some extent. But just like any other second language, it takes a great deal of time and effort, and one always prefers the opportunity to uh, communicate with others who. Understands will understand one's perspective more personally. That's one of the reasons why I believe the autistic community and the growing opportunities for young adults on the spectrum to connect with the larger autistic community is so important.
0: That's really interesting talking about learning normal behavior as kind of a second language. When you say you had difficulty with metaphors and social niceties, what were some examples of the kinds of things that made you different and characterized your your, um, experience?
1: Well, and it's a wide array of different things. It's often said that nonverbal communication makes up um, up to half of any kind of communication in a particular conversation that's going on. So uh, for those of us who have difficulty interpreting nonverbal communication, be it facial expressions um, or tones of voice, um, which is not exactly nonverbal, but it goes back to the idea that, um, there are, unfortunately, more going, more, there's more going on in a conversation than just the words being exchanged. But if you're missing those particular things, um, and if your natural means of communication doesn't include those particular things, then that can be very challenging. Uh, on the flip side, there are also a number of advantages of the autism spectrum. The categorization-focused thinking, which many of us have as part of our more focused interests, uh, has often proved to be very helpful um, for those of us on the spectrum in particular fields, which is one of the reasons why we're overrepresented in fields like engineering and economics. My particular area of focus um, was always public policy, and you know, I, I was very much different from my peers around me, and that I would be you know, the one student bringing in the newspaper in second grade and reading it in the mornings, and... Um, So on and such forth. So I faced tremendous social bullying and I faced a lot of difficulties with my peers around me, difficulties in understanding them, difficulties with them understanding me, often difficulties even with my teachers understanding uh, me by virtue of the fact that there's an assumption that if you have any kind of diagnosis or disability, that the opportunities for you to succeed in high-level classes or to have aspirations or to hope for things like going to college or having a career shouldn't be available for you. So I often had to fight against both um, the difficulties that I had um, perceiving others and others perceiving me, as well as the expectations that others had for me.
0: So when you were in school, from the perspective of a parent or a teacher, you would seem withdrawn or in your own world or just not responding when you were being communicated with, you were kind of Um, really focused on your newspapers and and things like that, and that kind of attracted bullying and teasing and taunting from the other students. Is that kind of what was going on?
1: Uh, To an extent. I mean, I think that a part of it was that, but another part of it was just that I was, um, you know, and to some extent I still am, very much out of step with what was considered normal behavior, what was considered normal interest. Um, on the part of uh, peers, small talk, and, and those other forms of social communication, which are often um, less substantive but very crucial to uh, to um, in succeeding in the social world, um, very significant. It was a very significant challenge for me. And you know, those things can be very difficult. Um, the Asperger syndrome diagnosis doesn't come with any kind of difficulty. Typically uh, with verbal communication, and I always had a full range of verbal ability. Um, as a matter of fact, it was often said that the difficulty was more that I didn't know when to stop talking, as opposed to um, when
0: to talk. I'll try and keep that in mind during the interview. Then. <laughs> well, uh, I appreciate that, Will. So you were so you were kind of like an outsider. You were different. You weren't sort of part of the crowd or part of the sort of so-called normal mainstream as a kid.
1: Yes, very much so. But I still wanted to have the same kinds of opportunities as the mainstream. And, you know, when I when I entered high school, I was sent to an out-of-district placement. Instead of having the opportunity to go to school with my peers five minutes away from home, I would be bused an hour and a half north to a school which was very much inferior to my local one, academically, where students like me were supposed to go.
0: So you were basically diagnosed as having a developmental disability, and then really given this treatment that was was pretty counterproductive for you.
1: Yeah, I, and I think I think a lot of it relates to the kinds of expectations that are had because of the assumptions that are put in place about um, students who. Uh, have a variety of different kinds of neurological differences or students with disabilities or what have you, Um, I think those things can often be more limiting. And I was placed in a school environment that was, in a lot of ways, more a daycare than an academic setting.
0: So you were not challenged intellectually. You were segregated from the rest of the school and the rest of the students, and then you really were kind of given a liability and not given the opportunities that you really that you really needed and and deserved, all in the name of treatment and caring for you because you were developmentally disabled.
1: And people basically, and I think this is common across the disability community, they try and tell you that they know your needs better than you do. And I think that's a very dangerous thing. The message of the disability rights movement is nothing about us without us. And there's a reason for that. Now, I had to fight for my own inclusion. I had to fight for my own opportunity to get the kind of education that would unlock the future that I wanted for myself. Um, And, you know, that was a very difficult process. But what is, I think, most frightening to me is that for many students out there, um, that kind of message is uh, absorbed. The idea that they are inferior is absorbed. And that can be very damaging because it really uh, it puts a limit on people's potential and people's opportunity it doesn't have to happen if we can educate folks about self-advocacy and educate folks about neurodiversity.
0: Yeah, the parallels with the mental health issue are, are really pretty strong and clear here. So when you went to this special school, you were you were not given the intellectual opportunities, this, the academic opportunities. And also was there, because I know that your work in the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network talks about this quite a bit, was there this effort and pressure to train you to become more normal, that you were being pushed into a different way of being that was um, considered more acceptable and more mainstream? Was that part of the special schooling?
1: Uh, Yes, it was. And I think one of the biggest difficulties there, and this is really the case across the autism world, and and, and now we in the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network are trying to look at this at a policy level and at the implications for practice level, but there's a tremendous focus on behavior, um, and when I say behavior, I'm not just talking about um, you know, disruptive behavior or objectively problematic behavior, but just behavior that is viewed by society as socially optimal. You should look people in the eye, you should um, behave in this particular fashion when communicating socially, um, you should not uh, you know, uh, be focused on particular interests or what have you, this is what someone your age is appropriate to, to talk about and to think and say and so on. And those things can be very damaging, um, both by virtue of the fact that it serves to suppress um, some of the natural behaviors of those of us on the spectrum, such as sequencing behavior, but also because it isn't particularly useful um, towards the ends that it aspires to.
0: So, what are some examples of the kinds of things that you were doing when you were in school um, that they tried to change?
1: So I was told very often, well, Ari, the fact that um, you are so focused on your particular topics, you know, public policy and history. Uh, that's something we're going to have to get you to stop doing. So we're not going to give you access to high-level classes in those ways. Ari, you need to learn to start looking people in the eyes. You need to learn to um, start you know, engaging in these forms of nonverbal behavior. And I have to say, uh, Will, you know, I think there is advantage to understanding these things, just as there's advantage to teaching students who come into school knowing uh, only one language, a non-English language, teaching them English. But the difference is that there's a world of difference between teaching understanding and teaching the ability to communicate in the standard way and teaching that as a virtue and teaching that as the only way to do it. Beyond that, the behavioral focus isn't terribly effective. Um, at teaching this, as opposed to focuses that focus more on helping people to understand why a particular person does this or why this type of behavior might send this kind of message, I remember in social skills classes, you know it, it, we would often be told, well, when people are happy, uh, they smile like this, and you know they would have a very broad kind of stereotypical smile, and people don 't actually ever look like that. And you know, I think the difficulty is, is that when you teach those things, those social rules, those, those kinds of hard and fast rules of behavior, as opposed to the reasons behind it. You often actually hurt people's ability to understand the world around them and to be understood.
0: Yeah, your analogy with learning a second language is extremely instructive because, you know, do we learn a second language to um, enrich ourselves and to give us access to mainstream culture in the country that we're in or the society we're in? Or do we learn a second language to denigrate and put down and get rid of our first language and the first culture that we come from? It's a very, very different kind of um, kind of dynamic and there's also a um, parallel with a lot of the message of the MAD movement of the way in which behavior is focused on and problematic behavior and this is a behavior we have to change and then the idea of meaning. Let's understand where this behavior comes from. What is the experience of the person who's doing these things that are considered problematic and then maybe we can develop a greater understanding and comprehension about um, how to rel- relate to them better Ari so your experience is as you said just one of um, many different kinds of things that people go through who are diagnosed autistic what about some of the other sorts of um, lives that people lead sometimes people don't communicate verbally, or sometimes they're very disruptive, the kind of the stereotype I think that we get of an autistic kid is someone who isn't communicating and that just sort of has outbursts. And um, when I know that your work isn't just about people who are on the Asperger's um, end of the spectrum, but for all autistic people. Is there a, a, so maybe you should just take a moment and address some of the, of the broader kinds of things that people go through who are diagnosed with autism.
1: Absolutely, and you know, I think the first thing to understand is that because the spectrum is so incredibly diverse, containing um, many folks like myself, containing many folks with very significant communication impairments, containing folks um, uh, with intellectual disabilities, containing folks assumed to have intellectual disabilities, and so on and such forth, because of that diversity, it is important that uh, we look at a broader array of different policy issues and recognize that no one individual can speak for the entire autism spectrum. That's why it's important that uh, we, as a community, and you know why I've always worked to ensure that ASAN, the Autistic Self Advocacy, as an organization, have a wide array of different kinds of folks on the spectrum um, involved. You know, many folks on the spectrum cannot communicate through verbal means, and, um, you know, this type of a radio interview would be very difficult. And one of the things we've worked to promote, because many of our um, constituents have found it extremely helpful, is something called augmentative and alternative communication. It's the use of assistive technology um, and other measures to empower people to communicate through means other than traditional verbal speech. First, I think we need to look at the fact that um, there are many people who would have the potential to communicate with the right supports that are not getting those supports right now. Um, And the experiences of many autistic people who are presumed as uh, more, quote-unquote, low-functioning, and I don't like that terminology. I think it feeds into a hierarchy that is often self-fulfilling. But the experiences of many of them is that there are assumptions about um, what kind of intellectual potential they have because of the fact that they have difficulty communicating. And so effort really isn't put into empowering them to communicate.
0: Ari, what would be an example of that?
1: Well, for example, you know, one of the experiences of some of the folks in our organization is that um, until such time as they received augmentative communication support, Uh, they were presumed as not having any kind of intellectual potential, as um, not even being aware of the world around them. And after they got the ability to communicate, um, it became very apparent that these were people with a tremendous amount of potential and with definite opinions about how they wanted to be treated and the world around them. And I think that 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 really speaks to the civil rights component of uh, the need to encourage augmentative communication here.
0: What kind of technology were they given that they were able to use? Generally,
1: augmentative communication can refer to everything from a very basic form of AAC like the picture picture exchange communication system where people point to pictures to more developed forms like a full keyboard um, and other types of things Uh, somewhat similar to, um, you know, with a voice synthesizer, similar to what you might see, uh, Stephen Hawking, who has a different disability that requires AAC utilize. Uh, There's a very wide array of different um, things here. Unfortunately, the expense around these devices is unnecessarily high by virtue of the fact that there's been very little research around it, and there has been um, very little uh, work to promote AAC as a device that would be available for a wide array of people because of the opportunities around this field aren't widely known.
0: In in terms of helping people to communicate in a way that's comfortable for them, are there other ways that don't maybe involve technology that maybe involve having translators or maybe other autistic folks who are understanding or empathetic or have a, a familiarity with the different kinds of communication that people use? Well,
1: I think it depends on the individual. You know, for some folks, the difficulty uh, with oral speech is going to be present um, throughout their lifetimes and in all circumstances. For other folks, it will never be present, and the difficulties are more with social perception and social communication. So, for that, yes, it would be very helpful to have somebody that understands. um, You know, and and can say something to the effect of, um, "Well, the person who just said." Um, you know, it's raining cats and dogs. They don't mean that it's actually raining cats and dogs, so you don't have to look at them like they're saying something ridiculous. Um, they, it's, a, it's a metaphor that means this, or, you know, the person didn't literally mean um, go jump off a bridge, so they're not actually saying something that mean or terrible. Um, but then there's also folks in a middle situation in which the difficulties with oral speech may come up in periods of high stress and anxiety and that's actually manifested in a different policy issue in that um, there's been a growing amount of attention paid to how autistic adults and children often um, get into tragic misunderstandings with law enforcement officers by virtue of the fact that many of our traits um, such as not looking people in the eye and acting in socially inappropriate ways attract the attention of law enforcement and then as a result of the stressful experience of being confronted people have difficulty communicating um, the reasons for this and so all, all sorts of problematic situations arise that's one of the reasons why we're encouraging more training for police officers to ensure that um, autistic adults can be safe in their communities and that we no longer face the possibility of um, uh, being placed into unfortunate circumstances
0: involving law enforcement. Which is also a parallel with the mental health um, community and advocacy. Absolutely. because yeah, of that,
1: the, that is an area of
0: commonality. Um, now, Ari, I want to back up a minute and just talk a little bit about autism as a diagnosis because one of the controversies in the mental health field that we talk a lot about on Madness Radio is this extremely unscientific aspect to giving someone a schizophrenia or a bipolar, or an OCD diagnosis. There are no blood tests. There are no brain scans. There's no genetic markers, despite what the kind of the hype is about the biology of mental illness. When it comes right down to it, it's a a subjective determination that's um, made Uh, by an interview that a doctor or nurse does so I'm wondering about the autism diagnosis I mean is do we find the same kind of difficulties in the diagnosis itself or
1: most of us in the autistic community are actually less concerned um, by the idea that we are receiving a diagnosis um, than we are concerned about um, the fact that very often particularly for adults and adolescents on the spectrum there's a, a very little uh, um, competency on the part of many professionals in terms of making accurate diagnoses the diagnostic criteria were primarily designed for children and so you have situations in which adults on the spectrum have difficulty getting accurate diagnostic services because the criteria expect us to be behaving the same way at 30 as at age three. In addition, you know, in respect to the autism spectrum, um, I think most of us are actually very, uh, um, uh, you know, much in agreement with the scientific community on the point that it is uh, something of neurological origin. Um, you know, we've been. Uh, I think a lot of that comes from the legacy of points in which the autism spectrum has has been. Uh, assumed as something that was the result of trauma or poor parenting and that those things are not accurate. Um, you know, and I think that speaks to the fact that um, you know, we agree with the idea that this is something that is different with our brains, but where we don't agree with many in the professional community is how we should respond to that in that we think that, you know, our brains are different. There's not necessarily something wrong with that. We might need different educational services. We might need different things. But that's just reflective of um, the diversity of of our society, and we don't think that there's any more problem with that than with other kinds of diversity.
0: Right. Now, this would be a really interesting area of difference with the mental health, um, the MAD movement, and a lot of the mental health advocacy issues now one of the issues with um, schizophrenia or bipolar diagnosis is that when you get a diagnosis okay you're schizophrenic okay you're bipolar the expectation is that you're not going to change and that you're not going to recover and recovery has been a really central part of a lot of mental health advocacy and we know the studies are very clear you can talk to people all the time they've gotten they've had terrible experiences they were in the hospital they got a really bad diagnosis and then through a million different pathways, they are able later on in their life to move on. The The studies are clear in the recovery movement that that these diagnoses are not necessarily for everyone a lifelong condition. Now, let me ask in terms of autism, what about the question of recovery and change because you've been critical of the idea of, of pushing people to normalize and, the, and you're emphasizing the importance of respecting difference. Is this a really common experience of people who are diagnosed with autism that it pretty much stays a trait or a characteristic of their personality, of their behavior, of their minds throughout their lives, or do people sometimes change and move on and and recover?
1: Um, You know, I think the recovery concept is not something that we in the self-advocacy community believe in, in respect to the autism world. We, uh, We very much respect that it's something that the mental health consumer community views is very important to their experience. Dan Fisher and I of the National Coalition of Mental Health Consumers Psychiatric Survivors, he and I have had long conversations about this and we've sort of come to the conclusion that, uh, you know, different our different communities, we just have different needs around this. And, and the reason is um, that, in fact, uh, for us, this idea of recovery, this idea that um, you know we need to be fixed and that you know we can we can grow out of it or what have you, uh, has been uh, one of the things that uh, has been very heavily pushed by the parent community, but it doesn't match with our experiences. Now let, let me be clear. we think, um, and what we're striving for are things like, um, you know, e- equality of opportunity, the opportunity to be successfully employed, the opportunity to succeed in um, living in our communities and have all the same opportunities as any neurotypical person. But we don't think that that necessarily means that we're no longer autistic. Um, and we think that, if for us at least, in our experiences, um the the focus on trying to make us something that we're not and this may be the big difference because at least from the neurodiversity perspective in the autism world the difficulty isn't the autism label that's something that connects us to others like us that's something that gives us a sense of identity and helps us understand our place in the world and how we can succeed. The difficulty is the stigma attached to that label.
0: Exactly. And I think there's parallels and there's convergences and differences here. And one of the aspects of mental health advocacy has been, especially um, with the work that um, the Icarus Project has been doing and other groups that are like it, this idea of mad pride that there is a difference that we do want to celebrate. The recovery movement has really been focused on, look, the potential is for everyone to return to normal. And there are, there's another side of it. I mean, I would really identify less with that perspective and more with the experience that, look, I am, I'm different than the majority of people that are in this society. I have altered states of consciousness. I hear voices. I go through very extreme shifts in my personality. I have spiritual and psychic experiences. I don't necessarily want to recover from those things. There, there might be aspects of my life that have to do with suffering that I do want to recover from, but really um, it's parallel to the idea of um, self-advocacy network and around autism, that there's a difference and maybe it needs to be accepted and uh, accommodated. If you're just joining us, this is Madness Radio. We're speaking with Ari Naiman. He is the founding president of the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. He's an adult on the autism spectrum involved with disability policy nationally.
1: We really we, we think that the idea of struggling against the part of who we are is a problematic one now i uh, we I should be very clear this is not to say that the experience of being autistic in a neurotypical society is uh, peachy keen that we autistic people don 't face any problems except for overt discrimination. I mean to say that would be. A uh, sort of obscene whitewashing which i I certainly would condemn from anybody else, and I would not want to myself to be guilty of. We face tremendous difficulties. Um, you know, in, in a wide array of areas from um, being well integrated into our communities to finding housing and employment, discrimination, bullying, and so
0: on. Are the difficulties associated with autism really the result of living inside of a neurotypical, as you're saying, mainstream that doesn't accommodate autism? Or are there things that are intrinsic to being autistic itself, that are associated with suffering and difficulties and this might be a real difference with the mental health issue because when someone has a diagnosis of schizophrenia i mean i can tell you the suffering that i go through is partly as a result of my discrimination and ostracism and the labeling and everything that's come from the society but part of it is just my suffering inside of myself that has mysterious origins that may be from just who i am as a person but there are kind of two pieces of that puzzle of where the suffering comes from
1: that does seem to be a significant a significant difference and i think there's some recognition of that for instance you see a lot of autistic people talking about how for instance that the their being autistic isn't the source of any kind of objective problem it's the source of it's you know discrimination and i also should add lack of support because i think that's another area um, that causes the problem, but on the other hand, they, they are very clear uh, in saying, and many of us and you know, I myself would be very clear in saying that struggles that I and others have had with depression and anxiety and some of the coexisting um, uh, conditions, medical or mental health uh, that uh, we are often more likely to face, those are things we very much do want to overcome. So, you know, I think at the same time as we stress our similarities, we, we have to look at some of those differences too in order to be uh, appropriately respectful to everybody involved.
0: I would certainly look at that in myself. I would love to overcome some of my anxiety and depression and the negative kind of side to it. But at the same time, there's a lot of the suffering that I go through that I see in a broader context of meaning, like, for example, my creative process. A lot of artists. Describe going through terrible, terrible depressions after they finish a, a major work, work of art, um, or go through incredible anxiety before they do a performance or on stage or that kind of thing. And so, um, you know, it's it's a complicated issue of what I might want to get rid of or change I- inside of myself. But it's it's a really interesting discussion that we're that we're having here. Tremendous um, parallels and differences and convergences and and divergences.
1: And it's interesting, one of the areas that I've been encouraging folks in the professional community to look at is to look at neurodiversity as a framework for analysis and to, in any aspect of uh, educational practice or or, or practice around people um, or in terms of folks' uh, uh, efforts around themselves, to ask sort of two questions here. And the first question is, is a particular thing, um, you know, a behavior or a trait or what have you um, that is under discussion, is that uh, trait um, objectively uh, the cause of difficulty or is it um, instead uh, simply, um, you know, a difficulty as a result of the kinds of uh, experience, the way in which a person is treated? So for instance, the difference there would be that we would be very clear in saying, um, okay, self-injurious behavior, that's a problem for anybody in any world. And objectively speaking, that's something that we want to see uh, addressed um, you know, if that's a difficulty that an autistic person is facing, and many of us do face that difficulty. But on the flip side, you know, sequencing behavior, lining things up, or having focused interests, um, which is in, in our minds actually one of our biggest strengths, or not looking people in the eyes. Those are things that are merely socially stigmatized. Exactly.
0: And there's a parallel, for example, I'm thinking of the hearing voices phenomenon, those of us who hear voices and go through those kinds of unusual sensory experiences. Is there anything intrinsically problematic with hearing voices? And the hearing voices movement has been saying no, that actually it's how we interpret those voices, or it depends on what kind of voice that we're having, that a lot of people actually have this unusual trait of hearing voices. And um, they live with it quite fine if they don't experience stigma or discrimination or reaction from the people around them. So there's definitely a a parallel here. Ari, I want to really zero in on this question of neurodiversity. What does the science say about autistic people having physiologically different brains or brain chemistry or um, neuroscience than normal people? Are there tests? Are there genetic differences that can be predictive of someone being autistic or not autistic? I know you've been involved in this debate around genetics and genetic screening. So what does the science say about are autistic brains different than normal brains?
1: Well, the science does say pretty conclusively that there are differences not being a neuroscientist, you know, I I wouldn't be exactly in the position to describe the exact physiological differences. And also, I would say the science is, in a lot of ways, still developing to describe exactly what those differences are. But there is a wealth of science which shows that autistic brains are different from neurotypical brains, and that this is Uh, overwhelmingly for predominantly genetic reasons.
0: Have there been genetic studies that are able to show genes and genetic differences as well?
1: Yes, there have. And as a matter of fact, there's been some recent studies in the journal Nature which have identified a number of the genes and the the current scientific thinking says that there may be hundreds that contribute to the autism spectrum and different genes and different individuals and so on. Um, but uh, they have identified a number of the genes around the autism spectrum. Autism is still diagnosed behaviorally, um but uh, you know, there have been sufficient studies and there's sufficient scientific evidence to show that those behavioral diagnoses um, which you know tend to be uh, it, it, there really is not at least as far as the science shows and Certainly our experience is an overdiagnosis problem in the autism world. In some ways there's an underdiagnosis problem.
0: Is that a non controversial statement in the autism community, the broad autism community, that everyone pretty much is on board with the idea of genetics and neurological difference in, in in brain physiology?
1: I think everybody is on board with the idea of neurological difference in brain physiology.
0: Because as you know, it's very different in the mental health community that actually the, what's happened is that that Issues like the meaning of experience, uh, trauma that people go through, all of that has been kind of pushed aside in the, in the name of genetics
1: I have to say that that's very different in the autism in the autism world, and I think this is just reflective of the fact that there are differences between uh, the autistic experience and the mental health experience. At one point, it was believed that autism was the result of poor parenting, and that was shown to be pretty clearly scientifically um, false, and um, that myth caused a lot of damage.
0: So in just in general, the rates of trauma and abuse among autistic diagnosed people are not higher?
1: Well, it, 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 the rates of trauma and abuse um, uh, are higher, but it, it's chicken-or-egg-type situation because uh, it tends to be more that because of our particular traits, autistic people are more likely to... Uh, face abuse. Um, when you have difficulty communicating, you're more likely to face abuse. So
0: it's after the experience rather than in the mental health world that's prior to the experience. Well,
1: and, and our feeling has been very clear that we believe that we are born autistic. Now, there are some in the parent community that think it's the result of environmental toxins, and the science really hasn't supported that. But I do want to highlight one area around the genetics here because One of the things that concerned us in the self-advocate community tremendously is is that as more science shows the genetics around the autism spectrum, there's a possibility for a prenatal test, and that worries us uh, quite a bit because, um, you know, in a lot of ways, we see what's happened for people with Down syndrome. There's a 92% rate of selective abortion around the Down syndrome prenatal test, and with all the fear and public stigma and hysteria around the autism spectrum, we're worried we might see something very similar if we saw an autism uh, prenatal test. So we have a lot of bioethics concerns around the current direction of autism genetic uh, studies. You know, We believe the studies to be more or less accurate, but we're concerned about how they're going to be utilized.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a really tough um, dilemma to, to be in.
1: Um. But I, I just want to be clear. I'm not... Trying to deny the uh, or, or disagree with the experiences of mental health consumers that are calling attention to you know the role that trauma might be playing as a causative force in in, in their uh, conditions. I'm just saying that in respect to the autism spectrum, there there aren't really there isn't really uh, any s- uh, strong stakeholder that believes that. Um, autism is something of uh, as the result of childhood trauma or anything of that nature.
0: It's a very different use of diagnosis and genetics and neuroscience that is in the two communities. One has been, you know, used in a kind of an empowering way around uh, diversity and identifying and recognizing people's needs, whereas in the other community, the mental health community, it's been used actually to impede meaningful treatments and getting people the kinds of social and psychological supports that they need looking at the role of oppression and looking at the social factors and the trauma and all the different holistic factors that we talk about quite a bit on Madness Radio all that's like swept aside in the name of well you've got this biological um, genetic disease and that's it it's not going to change and then also of course the difference around the expectation of recovery if you're told hey, you're bipolar, that's your whole life. You're basically just going to focus on um, managing your symptoms with medication. And of course, the other piece of it here is that it doesn't sound like autism is something that is really heavily marketed around um, by the pharmaceutical companies.
1: There's the beginning of that. There's the beginning of that, but it isn't to the same extent in the mental health world. For instance, they recently started promoting risperdal as a way of um, a- a trying to treat aggression in autistic people, and we're we're very concerned about the possible side effects there. We think that that is being promoted, um, and it's sort of another in a sometimes in a, in a fashion that isn't totally informing consumers and and parents of the side effects. And also, it goes back to the broader problem of looking solely at behavior and not at the reasons for behavior.
0: It becomes a behavioral control issue. And, and also, it doesn't seem like it's being pushed as the treatment. It seems like behavioral therapy has been kind of the reward punishment for behaviors and segregating has been the main treatment which is really different than the mental health world where it's been the medications have been seen as that's what you need to go on and then of course the studies as we talk about all the time on madness radio don't support the idea that medications are promoting recovery at all in fact they're killing lots of people and there's just not much research and promotion of alternatives to medication because of the huge profit motive and so that whole factor is not so much present.
1: Well, there's some, to some level it's present. I think we see the same kind of profit motive in terms of the behaviorist industry, Um, and there is, you know, a tendency to uh, over-medicate autistic people, although more as a sort of a means of control as opposed to as a kind of, well, you know, this is going to fix people.
0: Well, I was thinking of the parallel with the uh, nursing homes, for example, where a lot of elders um, who don't even have a psychiatric diagnosis are being given antipsychotics and other kinds of, of psychiatric medications just to control their behavior. And that sounds like that's what's happening with the autistic as well.
1: Right, right. Well, and, and, and you know, we feel, feel that is, you know, a form of chemical restraint. And I have to say another area of commonality is we have this common issue around, um, aversives, restraint, and seclusion. Well, at the very least, it's around restraint and seclusion. I don't know to what extent the mental health community deals with aversives, but we've been trying to fight that.
0: Aversives being uh, behavior modification techniques, like using uh, punishment, physical punishment for... An...
1: Yeah, that, that is, aversive is the use of pain as a means of behavior modification, something we view as very abusive. It's It's basically torture.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: and we don't—we're not tolerating it on the part of our nation's worst enemies. So why should we be tolerating it yeah. on the part of children and adults with disabilities? Well, the
0: parallel is with forced drugging and, and restraint um, with uh, mental health diagnosis, which is primarily used as a way of controlling.
1: I think we, we're dealing with the same situation there.
0: There's a lot of literature, um, historical literature, and cross-cultural literature around, say, schizophrenia, and around, say, manic. So-called manic experiences that really look at how different cultures interpret these strange, unusual, different states of consciousness. There's connections with being becoming a healer. They're seen as having spiritual, very you know, uh, possession of by demons. I mean, there's a rich, rich cultural, historical legacy around m- madness. And I'm just curious about: Do you see cross-cultural studies and historical studies of autistic people? or th- what we would consider to be autistic people appearing or throughout history in different cultures and then having been treated differently by those cultures? Yes, yes,
1: we definitely do. And I think we see it in, in a few different ways. I'm going to identify three here. Um, the first is what we see in the modern day in terms of how different societies deal with the autism spectrum. And it's very interesting, for instance, in Korea... Um, and in some uh, Korean American communities, there are a variety of different diagnoses that are sort of substituted instead of autism, just because of the stigma around that. And you know, we see similar experiences in other countries. Different countries are still at different phases of getting over the the Betelheim refrigerator mother, it's the fault of the parents kind of myth. Um, but then we also see a phenomenon that we today you know as autism and the autism spectrum has been viewed throughout history. And there have been examples in which it's been viewed in um, a positive way, or at the very least in which individuals with those traits have been viewed in positive ways. Senator uh, Durbin recently gave a speech on autism and employment uh, this past month in which he highlighted Alan Turing, the inventor of the computer, as somebody who most likely was on the autism spectrum and would have been diagnosed as such. Um, you know, today. Um, but then there are also examples in which the phenomenon has been viewed in an incredibly negative way, and we see that particularly in the kind of changeling mythology. The you, you used to see in medieval Europe this claim that fairies would come in the middle of the night and take a normal child and place a fairy child in the place where and the child wouldn't respond to its mother, and the child would be withdrawn. And, um, you know, today we we, we see that as actually a fairly accurate description of autistic traits. And it wasn't a fairy uh, that stole the child and put a different one in the place. Um, It's simply an autistic uh, child um, going through uh, what is a normal development for an autistic child. But unfortunately, you know, the the kind of mythos existed and... (laughs) Uh, no less an authority than, than Martin Luther actually said that the proper response to this kind of situation was to drown that child in the river. Um, so you know that there is a very significant history of violence um, against folks who display uh, autistic traits in history, and that still carries with us to this day.
0: That would also be a parallel with the mental health um, I
1: issue. I think so, and I actually want to highlight one thing in particular. Um, an example of an advocacy campaign, we embarked on, that uh, touched on both the autism and the mental health world. You might recall in December of 2007, when an NYU Child Study Center right, right. launched a fairly yeah, horrific uh, ad campaign entitled Ransom Notes um, with billboards, uh, each one being a fake ransom note from a particular disability claiming to have stolen a child. Um, and there were, there were autism spectrum disabilities in those uh, billboards, there were mental health um, uh, disabilities, and you know there's just this, this common theme that we weren't fully present in our own bodies. And we, we brought together a very broad coalition of groups, disability rank right? groups from across the country, and mobilized thousands of people to stop that. But you know, unfortunately, that kind of imagery is still very commonly and very publicly used around the autism spectrum, and I imagine around the mental health world, too.
0: I do remember that campaign and being being part of the mobilization for that, and it's part of this pressure that I think both autism and the mental health community are working on, especially the Mad Pride side of mental health organizing, around, you know, normal, being normal, and the idea that, okay, if you're not normal, you're not going to fit in, that's going to be a problem. So, hey, we're going to sell you a product, we're going to give you Um, Some kind of institution or some kind of program or some kind of uh, treatment that you need to become normal and preying on people's anxieties, the anxieties that parents have, the anxieties that all of us have about fitting in. All right, we don't have a lot of time, but I wanted to ask you about a parallel that you've made with homosexuality, that being gay was really seen as, hey, something we need to change, it's a disease, it's um, something that needs to be treated. And actually, no, the problem with being gay and being um, someone who loves someone of the same gender is really the society reaction to that. It's not anything... Problematic with the experience itself, and you've made a parallel between that and autism.
1: Yes, and I think that's an appropriate parallel, and that we're looking for a same um, level of uh, destigmatization. Now, you know, the, 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 the commonality there is that um, we think that just like the gay rights movement, the neurodiversity movement needs to teach the world to stop looking at us as broken people in need of fixing. Um, you know one of the differences is that there are more extensive support and service provision needs around being autistic than around being gay, but in our opinion, you know just because we may have uh, different needs or more extensive needs, that should not mean that uh, we should be forced to try and engage um, just like um, gays and lesbians have been forced to try and engage in a, uh, for so many years in a futile effort to be something that we are not and that I think once you get over the discrimination and the bullying and the harassment and the isolation that society places autistic people in, that we don't wish to be. So I think there are tremendous commonalities there. And I also think that the neurodiversity or autistic self-advocacy movement uh, as part of the broader disability rights movement, which includes the mental health world too, is part of just the broader array of civil rights advocacy that our society needs to engage in. Uh, It's been my pleasure to work not only with members of my own community, but also to have had the opportunity to work with members of the, the very impressive and powerful and inspiring mental health consumer and psychiatric survivor community and broader disability rights movement towards those important goals.
0: right, we are just about out of time, but how do people get in touch with you? You want to give the website of your organization, and how can they find out more information?
1: Well, they should contact us by going to our website at www.autisticadvocacy.org, and you can sign up for our listservs there. Um, In addition, you can contact me personally at info at autisticadvocacy.org. That's www.autisticadvocacy.org. Advocacy.org and info at autisticadvocacy.org.
0: Ari Naaman, thank you for joining us on Madness Radio. Well,
1: thank you so much for having me on the show, and I hope to come back sometime. This has been a great experience. I'm looking forward to working with you and your community more well.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Ari Naaman. He's the founding president of the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. He's an adult on the autism spectrum, and he's involved with disability policy and the disability rights movement nationwide. The website is www.autisticadvocacy.org. That's all the time we have this week on Madness Radio. Thanks a lot for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is co-sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Hosted by Will Hall, music producer is John Rice, with technical assistance from Jeremy Lansman. Listen to our internet stream, podcasts, and show archives at madnessradio.net. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network, including KBOO in Oregon, WXOJ and WBCR in Massachusetts, Alaska's KWMD, and WPRR in Michigan. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, to help get us broadcast on a station near you, or if you just want to share what's in your head, contact radio at madnessradio.net.